great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This week we are back in Michigan, in Reed City. The year is 1983. Jeanette Robertson is a wife and mother of two young children. On the afternoon of January 19th, Jeanette was working in the pet department in the basement of Gamble's hardware store. Between 1.25 and 3.45 p.m., someone ambushed Jeanette, killing her in a violent attack involving multiple weapons. When her body was discovered by a co-worker, EMS and law enforcement descended on a chaotic scene, one crowded with onlookers and responders from the city, county, and state. We have another installment in the Women's True Crime Broadcast. This week I'm talking with Jenny Decker. She's an author of nearly a dozen books, including Redacted, A Search for the Truth About the Murder of Jeanette Robertson. And Jenny, you have quite a library of work, from satire and comedy pieces to noir-style mystery novels and your true crime book about the 1983 murder in Reed City, Michigan. What made you take the leap to nonfiction? Well, I never tend to write nonfiction. I prefer fiction. I have one other book that's nonfiction, and it's a sort of a dark humor about my life. I have two boys with autism, and when they were young and I was in a writer's workshop, I would jot down little stories about what was going on in our lives, and I got such positive feedback from it that I decided to, based on, on suggestions from my writer's group, I just tried to put it together in a, in a larger format, and it ended up being a book that I got published, I think because it was humor with in a topic that is not always humorous. And back when I published it, there weren't a lot of books about autism that were humor. And sort of the same thing happened with Redacted. I never meant to to write a book. I was researching the Osceola Hotel. It's a local hotel that has been demolished here in Reed City. And at the time, it was just a neat building, and I had gotten in there once with my mom because we were working on a short film, and it just fascinated me, this old hotel that has that was broken down, so I was online doing some research, and I stumbled on a, a topics board thread that was specific to Reed City, and it said unsolved murder, and it was a really long thread, and so I spent the whole day reading it, and it just fascinated me, and I realized this murder occurred just down the road from me. It, it was in town at Reed City in a small little hardware store. I passed by that store every day when I took the kids to school, and so it just fascinated me, and I started looking into it, and I'd speak to other parents when I went to drop off the kids, and it seemed like every single day when I'd bring up the topic and I'd say Jeanette's name, somebody would remember the story, and it I just started collecting more and more information. I spoke with uh, family members, locals. I went down into the actual basement, which is not accessible to the public, but it, but I asked if I could the owner now is pretty pretty tolerant of me. So um, I have been down there a few times. So I think that's what, ha- what happened is that I 
it was just a, an interest. Like if you're watching an episode of Dateline and it interests you, and then suddenly you have a lot of information on the backstory. So it becomes even more interesting. I had a writer's background that was fiction, but I, my nonfiction always blossoms out of a personal interest, and then I sort of feel like I have something to say. In this case, I got so much information. I had compiled so much. Another girl, her name is Jen Carlson, that knew Jeanette's daughter at the time, she said, you know, maybe you should write a book. What I thought to myself is, this is maybe the only way I can personally help, is to put all this information into one space, set it up as a story that might interest the reader, and then get it out to locals especially. I wasn't really focused on a national audience, so I self-published it because I wanted to get it out there as soon as I could. And I just wanted to see if I could get the information in the story out there. There's, there was not a lot available to the public. And I thought, maybe this will shake out some weeds. If, if I can get people to think back and look at it with fresh eyes, maybe we'll get some new leads. And, and that happened. They did start getting some new leads, and since then we've tried to keep it in, in the public eye so that it doesn't get forgotten and, and hope that some people come forward with information. And that seems to have worked because in reading your book, which I enjoyed not only because it was so packed with information and the reality of what it's like trying to research these old cases, but you talked with everybody. You tracked down dozens and dozens of people who were involved in the case directly and indirectly or who were impacted by the case directly and indirectly. And I'm thinking specifically of the truck driver, Chris Mills, who happened to be in town with his rolling billboard and was investigated as a suspect. Yeah, I was I was lucky because basically what I did was when I sent in the FOIA, um, what I got back was a lot of like pages. But what it did give me were names. And so even though most of those statements were redacted, I was able to track down a lot of different people. And Chris Mills is, is a perfect example of how someone can be indirectly affected by a crime, you know, just happened to be passing through the town that day. And what had happened in that case is I think his, his girlfriend at the time called in a, a tip about him perhaps because she was uh, not a happy camper, they were fighting, and mentioned that he had some scratches on him. And because he had been in town and passed through town working that day, he, he was investigated pretty pretty heavily. But at that time, I think that they were sort of desperate. They just did, were not getting leads. They did not have anything. And so once they got to that point, after they had looked at the husband and then focused on another suspect that had some mental health issues, they were just it felt to me like they were sort of grasping at anything because they just did not have anywhere to go. Definitely was conveyed in the book that they were casting a wide net. You mentioned that you've been in the basement of the store and that it's no longer accessible to the public. When I was younger, there was a a store here in Bloomfield Hills called Damon Hardware, which some of my Michigan listeners may remember. And it was on Telegraph. That store had a basement. And you sort of walked down a big set of stairs into like a very wide open area where there were additional hardware items to purchase. From the drawings in the book, it doesn't appear to be a very large space. Can you expand on that for us? Well, it it is actually, um, but it's got a very closed-in sense. So basically when you walk into the the Gamble store, it's a very deep store rather than wide. Uh, But the owners had purchased what was an old, it was called the men's store, it was a men's clothing store, on one side, and they had cut holes into the wall on both floors, up and down. And these are thick rock walls. In fact, to this day, you can go down in the basement and see where they sort of cut out a 
a circular, it's a semicircle sort of um, archway to get from where the little pet department is into the, the next side. And so if go down the staircase, which was in the center of the store, right next to where the register was. There were two registers in the store. One was right in the front by the front door. The other one was in the center of the store. So you'd have to pass the register to go down there, although it's a sort of a cluttered store with high shelves. So you wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be positive that someone would see you walk down there, depending on where employees were standing at the time. But you walk down the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, it's a very long room straight back. And so then there would be a matching room right next to it to your left if you're facing the back of the room that you can access by a, a archway that you go into. At that time, that was a room that they were working on, a little hobby shop area that had models and things like that. But in the back of that room was storage. And there was another set of stairs that was not used by the public, but it was just used for employees. So you've got this long room. The ceilings are fairly low, though, now, and I'm not sure if the ceiling is the same then, but it's a, sort of a drop ceiling now. It is a very um, claustrophobic environment, if that makes sense, even though the room is long. And at the time, there was uh, the back section, right, to all the way to the back, was where they had tanks that had, and it was a little bit more dim, and, the, and it was a whole area with fish tanks that were lit from inside, so it was the kids used to be really attracted to it. So there was fish, and there were other things that she sold back there. And there was a door in the far back that accessed the back room that ran in an L shape along the back wall and the right wall. And then there were one more door or other doors to access that. So it was a fairly big space, but because of the clutter, I had tall shelves that made it feel like aisles did have a very sort of closed-in feel. And I can tell you from being in that basement that. It, you can hear every football of, upstairs. It's a creaky wooden floor upstairs. And when I was there, both times, I could hear conversations between the owner and, and customers. They were muffled. But I certainly believe that had she screamed, she would have been heard. So I, don't, I either think she did not have a chance to scream, it was a blitz-style attack, or it was someone she knew, and it happened instantly, and the person lashed out in a fit of rage. So I, because that was the one thing I noticed when I was there. I thought, wow, I can certainly tell you that if someone screamed, someone was going to hear that. And it was a truck day, so they did have a lot of comings and goings and things like that. But there's no doubt in my mind that it, had she had the opportunity to scream, someone would have probably heard her. The store was well-staffed. There were at least three and possibly as many as five or six people working Including. Right, and so there were two women that worked upstairs, two older women that worked as a cashier, and at the time they would have been putting stock away, you know, and, and when a customer came they would bring them up, then there would be the store owner and the manager, and I believe there was another gentleman there that was unloading stock that left before uh, the end of the day. So there were definitely uh, enough people that around. It wasn't an empty store, but it wasn't a, you know, when I spoke to the first investigator, he said there were, you know, hundreds of people that were in and out that day. But it was never, from everyone I spoke to, it was not busy when they were there. So while there may have been lots of people in and out, it was not a crowded place. It was not, and, and certainly the basement wasn't. The basement was much more of a quiet, the pet section was never a, a, an area where there would be a lot of people at a time. Jeanette would have been down there alone a lot. Customers that came, kids a lot came with their parents to, to look for things. It, it, it definitely attracted the, the kids in town because of all the animals and the, and the meat area in the back with all the fish. But it wasn't a, you know, somewhere where you, there was going to be a lot of people. From the timeline that you provided in the book, and some of this is also on your blog, 
She was last seen by a customer approximately 11.30, and she was on the main floor and asked if he needed assistance. And he said, no, thank you. He was uh, buying stuff on account and was writing up his own receipt. And I think it's worth mentioning that she was a very attractive woman. I mean, she almost looked angelic. She was quite lovely, in in my opinion. Yes. So she was making her memorable. I definitely think that anyone that saw her would describe her as attractive. And from every count that I got, she was a bit shy. She got to know her, but very friendly with customers. Not a single person that I spoke to had anything to say about her other than she was just lovely. And you mentioned the the customer that spoke to her that day. That is literally the only customer, person that I spoke with, that saw her that day. And it was about 1130. He worked for a local hospital in maintenance. And he was there to pick up something for work. And he was there often. She wasn't normally upstairs. She didn't work upstairs. She must have been just passing through. Maybe she had gone to the bathroom and was walking up to the front and back down and she came across him. He had asked her, where's everyone? She said they were unloading the truck and she asked him if she could help him find anything and he just made an offhand comment, I know this store better than you because she hadn't been there all that long. She had only been in town, I think, since 1980. So been there about three years, but she didn't work at the store. She may have been there for a few months or a year prior to that. Once he spoke to her, she went downstairs. She said she'd take care of something downstairs. That's around 11.30 or so. Every other person I spoke to that came in that store specifically went down to the pet department to look for something. No one else ever saw her. Now, I believe they did have a receipt because they adjusted the timeline slightly so that it would be between 1 and, I guess, 3.50 when she was found that the timeline would be, but I believe it's a little bit later than that. I, so there may be someone else that she rang out, but I certainly never encountered them. Every person, the person people that were, tell me they were there at noon, um, two to, in between 2 to 4, everyone I spoke to went down there, couldn't find her. Some of them came up and asked where she was. So there may have been a considerable amount of time where no one knew where she was. Because there was such a large gap of time that she wasn't seen by anyone. Right. From roughly 11.30 when this hospital gentleman, who I'm going to assume has been ruled out. As far as I know. See, I don't have all the information, but I I assume so because when he spoke with me, he said he had only spoken to one of the city police officers. He was never even spoken to by the detective. So I assume he was ruled out quickly by, I think some of the early first responders with the city and county did a lot of the canvassing while the detective handled the scene that day because it was a huge task that day. They had ruled out some of the people that had been in the store. But as far as, I have no idea who they ruled out other than there was one TV spot fairly recently in the last few months where the Reed City police chief said that the husband had been ruled out. And we'll get to Alvin in just a couple of minutes. Where did Jeanette grow up? I know her mother worked in in Reed City in the clerk's office. That's correct. And she, they came from Georgia, from a little town in Georgia. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at the birth certificate. I don't have it offhand. But she grew up, I, I believe it was, you know what, let me check something real quick since I have it right next to me. She was not from this area, but her mom had moved here. And she was born, let me see if I can find it. 
I thought it was Georgia. I thought it was a little town in Georgia. Um, I know that's where they came from, but I'm not, I couldn't say possibly okay. for I, sure where. I was thrown by her mother being a city employee and her being new to the area. So that was my Yes, My you confusion. know, that was one of the first thing, red flags that I got, and I'll tell you why. It, maybe it's just because as a writer, I, I don't look at, I, I'm not an investigator, so I look at a bigger picture. When I went to start researching this, I started wide and worked in, whereas the police sort of start start tight and then work out in sort in concentric circles. And what I, one of the first things I did is I went down and I got a couple years' worth of city council meeting minutes because her mother was the treasurer and the clerk. And so my first thought was, wow, I hope this was not, didn't have anything to do with the job. You know, someone who's working with the money for the town, you want to look into it a little bit. That was one of the first things I did in this investigation after I looked up old newspaper clippings to see what the general public had heard about the case. And it was fascinating because I think I I got to know her mother even more than, than I got to know Jeanette because I got to see her at work in action, and she had a lot of balls in the air, Marion Fisher. She, at one point, when they had to let go the city manager, she, she had to act as a city manager for a few months until they got another one, and that was just when I started. That was maybe the year prior to the murder. So she had a lot of work with the city, and she was very good at her job, but I definitely wanted to look at that because my first thought was, well, let me make sure there wasn't anything going on with the city or the money or anything in town that could have led to her daughter's death. And I didn't find anything of that sort. But it was fascinating to me that she was so involved in the running of the town, Marion Fisher. So she would have known everybody in town. Everybody knew her. She was seemed like a really nice grandmotherly type, a little spunky. But that was definitely something I looked at because it, it hit my radar pretty quickly. Yeah, and you do go into some of that in the book, that there was some city drama involving the city manager yep. and embezzlement, and that's a whole nother, that's actually its own sort of crazy story. I want to right. talk about Alvin, her husband. If you do some research online that he comes up as, well, he was fooling around, and he married a local girl right after his wife was murdered. And Can you sort of rein that in and tell us about Alvin? Sure. You know. Of course, they look at the husband first, and there were, I did hear a lot of those same rumors. He was having an affair. He left town quickly. What I found to be true is that he did end up meeting, I mean, he did end up leaving town with the babysitter, someone who was watching the children, but he did not leave as early as sort of the gossip would have had you believe. It was about a year after the crime, and he was looked at definitely hard. And I remember I spoke with a detective who was with the Osceola County Sheriff's Department who worked closely with the lead investigator on the case. And he told me that, to his recollection, the lead detective did not believe that it was the husband based on some of the evidence. And I can't be any more specific than that. But he he said, you know, I was looking at him. I, I That's who you look at because this is such a... Start. Violent act, and it's personal. It's definitely personal. He said, but the the lead detective, Detective Pratt, didn't didn't feel that it was the husband. So he was looked at really hard. I know that they did find his prints there because he was there that day. I believe he came to drop off some lunch for her. And um, I was told that it wasn't common 
necessarily for him to have been there, but he was laid off that week. That was another bit of gossip. There were a lot of people that said, oh, he changed his story, and he, he said he was at work when he wasn't, and that wasn't the case. He was actually laid off from work that day, and that happens a lot locally, seasonally here. When yeah. things slow down, sometimes they'll lay you off for a week, and then you come back. So he was off that day. And he, um, they did go, I guess the, the crime scene was so hectic that they didn't end up maybe getting over to his, his apartment just maybe till a few hours later when I spoke to one of his friends that worked with him. He said, you know, when I saw this on the news, and that would have been about 5 or 5.30, the first news, all I, I heard was someone at Gamble's had, had been murdered. And so I called Alvin to say to make sure that wasn't his wife and he said and he said it was. So I drove into town and went to sit with him. No police showed up. And so when I left and I drove back through town, I stopped and I uh said, You guys need to send someone over there. He doesn't even know what's going on. So he wasn't contacted like right away, like within the first hour, but sometime shortly thereafter and then they were there um for you know, into the into the evening and probably till nine or or so at night, he definitely got questioned hard. He was looked at. They took his shoes because I believe there was some paint on them because he worked with cars. And so he was looked at, and they took uh, samples, DNA, all that sort of thing. So he was definitely looked at. As far as I can see, he was ruled out. And they, like I said, they did say the police chief in Reed City um, in the last news broadcast did say that, that, that he had been ruled out. Now, as far as the lead investigator, Detective Pratt, he doesn't rule anyone out. I asked him about that. He said, I just, I don't rule anyone out. And he had no um, understanding of why that, that was said on the news. But it may have been that they they want the public to know, yeah, it wasn't him. Because the other concern I have is that when I spoke to people, most people thought it was him. When you have that long of a span of time that passes and there's no other information, and at the time you heard is, oh, they're looking at the husband, they're looking at the husband, they're looking at the husband, and that's all you heard, people are left with the impression that it was probably the husband and it didn't get solved. Well, I don't believe that was the case here. It's just that they looked at the husband and they looked at another viable suspect and they cast a wide net and they just never got what they needed. But it definitely appears that he he was ruled out as far as they set him aside and thought this is not him. It looks like he's got a, a, a you know an alibi. Now, Reed City, this is a small town. This is a small northern Michigan town, and the closest, for lack of a better term, big city is Grand Rapids? I'm, I'm yes, not even 100% sure if it's closer to Grand Rapids or Lansing. I don't think I've ever been to Reed City. I think Grand Rapids, I'm trying to figure out if yeah, uh, Traverse City is close to, but I would say Grand Rapids, is, it, it is the closest. We're, we're near Big Rapids, so if that helps a little bit. If, if we're using um, Nina's map of Michigan, which is the back of your left hand, it's probably right around mm-hmm. like where you'd wear your wedding ring. Yeah, Maybe exactly. a little further Directly north. Them, but okay. on the west side, exactly. Okay. Reed City has a population of about 2,000 people. Yep. Um, Very at, small town. And at the time, it was probably also close to 2,000. I've noticed that these smaller cities in the northern part of Michigan tend to have a relatively steady census. It was. I believe I looked it up, and it was right there in the uh, 2,000, 2,500 range. It was about the same as it is now, yes. Okay. And the police in Reed City see their share of murders, but they're not generally violent sexual attack like this one was. We see hunting accidents, bar fights that get out of hand. 
generally speaking. Yep. So this, this murder was an anomaly for the area. That's correct. So the police see their share of murders, maybe two or three a year would be my guess? Yes, it's not a, a large number. It's certainly not violent murders. Like you said, if it was if it, in this area, it, it, you know, there have been a few, but it's definitely an anomaly when it happens. doing this what what is why are you doing this it just sort of you can't help it at a certain point you you are lost to that abyss and you're going to have to ride that train all the way through and hope that they get it solved because it's just like with the cops once you once you see these stories up close it's hard to let them go it's really hard because you know that there are very few people that are concentrating on them that hard you want success you want the victims to have justice and you want not only the victims and the family but you want the people in the local areas to have confidence that these cases can get solved. Sort of a vicious cycle with the cold cases because it perpetuates the notion that they can't, they don't have the resources, they can't get it done. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with the police or their ability to do it. It's the resources and time to get what they need to get done. Correct. And they're also at the mercy of the original investigators on these old cases. Absolutely. And what, how good of a job they did back in the day. Right. And we talked about how the crime scene was handled with Jeanette Robertson's case. They may not have done the best job that they could have at the time, but I also think that at the time, a place like Reed City, it's a small town, it doesn't see a lot of cases like this. It's overwhelming. And that, yep. For a long time, I was just so frustrated. And the thing is, before I got the reports and I dug into it, that's what I heard mostly when I was talking to, to locals. Because a lot of people that knew about the case or lived here then still do. So that's how I was very lucky that I could sort of just go into town, walk into any business, and somebody would be in there would remember and start telling me their story. And the thing I heard repeatedly was, this case was mishandled, this case was mishandled. And once I got into the digging and I actually got into the weeds, I realized that it was more of a lack of training than anything else. But there's always, with a case where there's very little information given to the public and the desire to know, there's always going to be that jump to say, oh, the police messed up. And the fact is there were a lot of people in and out of that crime scene. Even the crime scene guys that came to get the evidence, the mobile unit, yeah, said to me, when I got there, it was a mess. And, you know, I said, we need to get this under control or I'm leaving. So when you have a lack of training, and that was decades ago, that's what you're going to get. And then the investigator who gets assigned that case, he stuck with that. When, in fact, I sat down with Detective Pratt and I asked him, how was his case handled? And he's an investigator, detective. He's not going to throw anyone under the bus. And what he said to me was, there's always something about every case that you wish had, be done, had been done differently. But you just have to work with what you've got and move forward. That's basically what they did. This case. The EMTs, the paramedics that responded, one of the paramedics was so horrified that she was in shock and was basically unable to assist. That's what type of scene this was. And I think that we as the public just assume that first responders go into sort of an auto mode and the training takes over and you do what you're supposed to do. And nine times out of 10, that is what happens. But there's always a case, and this was an especially gruesome case, where that doesn't happen. Your emotions might take over and cloud your judgment, or you're just not in a position to protect the scene the way it needs to be protected. And I'm afraid and that's what happened case, here. 
That's correct. And the the other thing that happened is there seemed to have been a miscommunication about what was actually occurring. Uh, the call was originally um, called in, at least from the perspective of the EMT, as a heart attack. Yeah. So they were en route to a heart attack, and that's what they thought they were going to find up until the moment they walked into that back room. The call did come in to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office as a homicide, but somehow the EMTs got a call. Their call was for a heart attack. So I'm not sure. I, to this day, I cannot figure out how they got that impression. They were walking into a heart attack as far as they knew. When that's what you think you're facing and you're setting your mind up for that and you're rushing in to try to save someone and then what you come upon is a brutalized body, that's any human being is going to kind of stop for a moment and be shocked. It just so happened that one of the EMTs was really shocked and I, I don't think I would have reacted any differently. There's not a lot of people that can deal with seeing crime scenes like this and so they, that's another thing. It, it, was, it was, as you said, very brutal. It was a very brutal crime, and I think that if, if I were to critique the law enforcement effort in the beginning, that would be one thing that I would say maybe was not put across to the public in a manner that it should have. Because when I spoke to people, while there, were, there was gossip that it was, a, it was a brutal crime scene and there may have been a sexual component, nobody I spoke to had any indication of how brutal it was. And I understand that they can't, can't put specifics out there, but... I've looked at some cases, and this was really bad. It was very, very vicious. It was overkill to the 100th degree. And so none of the people that walked in the room that day were prepared to find what they found. No, and even if you knew that it was a murder victim, you're not always prepared for what you're going to find. September 11th, 1984, so about 18 months after Jeanette's murder, we have the murder of realtor Sue Clausen. Another one I looked into a little bit because what I did was when I was researching Jeanette's case, I, I thought, let me just look into the, any other ones that are unsolved, certainly a, of another woman, a pretty woman, just in case to make sure that they're not related. I devoted a chapter to the local unsolved that I had gotten police reports for and checked into. So basically, Sue Clayson, Clayson Sue Clayson was a real estate agent with Century 21 in Cadillac, Michigan. And on September 11th in 1984, she hadn't been feeling well. She was due into work, but she missed a staff meeting earlier in that day, which I spoke with a friend, and she said, you know, that wasn't really like her. I, I remember her arriving about noon and sitting in the back office with her before she was on the clock and telling her, you know, you don't look like you feel that good. Maybe you should call your doctor. And her doctor was out of town at the time. So, um, you know, she was sort of sucking it up like we usually do and we're not quite feeling that well. And around um, 1 in the afternoon, Sue was sitting in the front of the office and a gentleman came in and he was carrying a folded newspaper and he asked for Sue um, Clawson. He, he pronounced it incorrectly. There's a city down here near Detroit called Clawson, and it's C-L-A-W-S. Oh, is there really? I didn't know that. Yeah, C-L. that's why I pronounced it Clawson when I looked at it. It's C-L-A-W-S-O-N, but to me, it's not Clayson, it's Clawson. Correct. Maybe he was from downstate. Interesting. I didn't know that, so I'll have to check that out. He did pronounce it, and none of the other employees recognized him, so he was a stranger. It doesn't look like he, um, he anyone 
there knew him. They believed he was an out-of-town person. So he was described as a white male, uh, 45 to 55 years old, about 5'8", 5'11". Stocky, not necessarily fat, uh, maybe a slight double chin and a rounded face. And he was uh, described as being nicely or natally attired with dark pants, a a waist-length zip-up jacket, some uh, a hat, and some wire-rimmed glasses. One of the women said he the hair looked a little bit bushy in the back, around the neckline. And he was described as being suntanned, which I thought was interesting in Michigan because you don't often, you know, I don't run across a lot of people in Michigan that have a natural suntan. The uh, gas station attendant who had filled Sue's car after they left the office together um, added that he had short, stubby fingers and a lot of visible hair on the back of his hand. And so um, how that played out was the stranger asked about a property that he had listed in the paper he was carrying, and they um, later found out it was a, from the Cadillac News. And the property listing had Sue's picture on it. So at the time, there was some discussion really quick about the property that he had asked about, and he said, um, no, I wanted something with more acreage. So Sue mentioned a couple other properties that she had in the Luther area, which is where the um, other ad had been. And the strangers said that he wasn't necessarily limited to that area. So the first thing I thought, well, that tells us that the killer didn't necessarily have that specific property in mind to take her to. The one that was in the newspaper, he was just generally trying to get her to a remote area. It was later established that the, the ad in the paper that he had inquired about had run in the free paper the day before on the 10th, on a Monday. And so in addition to the Cadillac News subscribers, it would have went out to all households in the Tri-County area, which included Wexford, Osceola, and Misaki counties. Um, because the last similar ad that had been placed was a month earlier, and it was in a Saturday edition. But the one that he had was had only been out the day before. So uh, once they established the property that they would they were going to visit, Sue grabbed the two keys, and she left with the gentleman. And, and all told, he was only in the office a few minutes. There were sightings of the two en route to the property because it was about a 30-minute drive. Uh, Sue was driving her large yellow car. Uh, They stopped for gas in Cadillac, and then they also stopped at a little place called Tustin Corners, a little convenience store. When I had spoken to um, Sue's daughter, because I've become friendly with her, she said that um, she may have stopped to get, like, because I believe she had gotten, like, a candy bar or something. So she may have gotten that because her stomach was a little upset. That was her explanation of maybe why they stopped again after they had stopped already at the gas station. Because I just, I guess I just found that a little odd that she's stopping so many times with someone in their car. But when I asked the daughter, she said that was didn't sound out of the realm of possibility for a real estate agent because they're so used to shuttling customers all around. So they were seen by other motorists, too, in various areas. And it was about a 30-minute drive from, from Cadillac to the area where they went. Sometime after 1 o'clock, a woman who lived across the street from the property that Sue was about to show noticed a large yellow four-door car pass the front of her house slowly. A couple minutes later, it comes back and passes and then pulls into the property and down the long driveway that was eventually to become the crime scene. It was an uninhabited home. It had multiple outbuildings, but the grass was, you know, grown up. Right. It was sort of unkempt. The woman went about cleaning her house, and sometime not... Very long later, she heard a gunshot. And, you know, it's not um, out of the ordinary to hear a gunshot out here in the sticks where we all live, but it wasn't, it was September, so it wasn't hunting season yet, and something about it bothered her, the sound of it. It just, it it bothered the woman enough that she grabbed her binoculars and she went to the front window. 
and what she ended up seeing was um, it looked like a man that she thought was bald with hair on the sides appeared to be putting something on the dash of the car, and then he got in, and she saw the vehicle leave with only one occupant. And she'd noticed so, two occupants going in, or she just correct. saw the car. Okay. Later, Sue's car was found three blocks from the Century 21 office, where the perpetrator clearly had left it, uh, went back to his own vehicle, which wherever he'd parked it. Um, That's really ballsy. And it's, I pulled up a map. It was pretty pretty close. to yeah. he, he may have had it a couple businesses down. But it wasn't until later that evening um, that that gunshot kept bothering the woman. So she, she bugged her husband a couple of times, and she said, just go over there and check and make sure there's nothing weird. So he gets jumps in his little old truck. And, you know, these houses aren't, like, right next to each other. She needed binoculars to see him in the driveway, so it wasn't that close. But the driveway was long that led down to the, the house. So he went, and he tottered down in his old truck. He didn't even have to get out of the truck, I don't believe, um, he drove all the way down the end of the driveway, and her body he saw her body laying in the grass right there near the driveway area. So he then drove back down the driveway and proceeded to, to go to a couple different houses to try to find someone who was home to call. Um, and he finally, they called police. It was about 7.30 in the evening, and then police showed up. So it was a single gunshot. That's really all we know. I don't have the details of that specific autopsy report, but I will say that at one time, um, investigators were looking into whether her case was linked to a serial killer by the name of Gary Allen Robbins, because there were some similarities into the case, and Robbins was someone who had committed a couple different murders, and he had posed as a real estate agent. He ended up getting caught because he went to the door of a um, state trooper. The wife opened the door, and there was and assault, but she she made it out of there alive, and there was a shootout at the end with police, and he ended up dying. But they did link him to other crimes where he posed as he had been a real estate agent, but had some financial issues, and life wasn't going very well for him. So he he also was described as sort of nicely dressed. But in the end, when I spoke to the detective, when I was working on the book, I asked him about that. I said. I noticed that the case was related. At one point, you thought it might be, and he said that no, that now that they don't believe it was. So that's a, that's another unsolved that I believe was random, likely random. When I spoke to the new cold case detectives, I asked, I said, "Did this look like something clearly that was random to you?" And he said, "Yes, probably someone that was from out of town," which makes it a whole lot harder to solve because of where course. you start, you know. Well, and what jumped out to me, um, initially I'd read that she had just been shot in the back of the head, so I was imagining an execution, but it sounds like that he attacked her physically and ended up shooting her, that there was Yes, a, a I, I believe she was trying to, to, get a, to get away, yes. Okay, but she was not robbed. I seem to recall that she was wearing some nice jewelry, a gold watch, a diamond ring, and that was left behind along with her personal items. Correct. I don't, like I said, I don't have the autopsy on that, I tend to believe that the motive might have been sexual in nature because there was nothing taken and the cases that they were looking at that were similar had a sexual component. So while that has not been released, we know it's not robbery, we know it was random, so where else would we be going, you know, but but that. So the the case, uh, all the cases with Gary Allen Robbins, there were, they were um, sexual in nature, some of them were bound and, and things like that. I don't get any indication that she was bound or anything 
of that nature, but it looked like that may have been at least the impetus for the attack, and maybe she was getting ready to run away, and, and he pulled out the gun and shot her. That's Yeah, that was my impression as well. Now, Jeanette still has family in the area? Her niece still lives here. The rest of her family live in other states, but they do a memorial walk on the date, and I participated in the first one every year on the anniversary of the death, and then sometimes, I believe last year they did a, something in August as well, do a little memorial walk around town. They stop at the front of the hardware store sometimes. It's usually pretty well attended, you know, for a small town, so just to keep it out there. But it's mostly locals because family doesn't live in the area. But imagine being a Michigan native that a late January outdoor walk is dicey. The one that I went to, though, we we lucked out, and it was, you know, that's really nice. They did sort of a, a square around town, but it can be. It, it's You're sort of a hit and miss. That's kind of the problem, and they do want to do it on the anniversary to remind people what time of year it actually happened, where it actually happened, and it always gets news coverage. I was going to ask if there's anything, yeah, if there's anything else you would like to share about Jeanette Robertson's case. Is there anything that you wish people knew? You know, I get the sense based on all the evidence that, like I said, that she didn't have a chance to scream. And I I get the general sense that the person was organic to the scene in that either they belonged there or they knew the basement well. Because it's an out-of-the-way area. certainly wasn't random. It was a personal attack. Yes. So it would have been someone that knew her. And it may have been someone who, like I said, was normal in that environment, at that scene, at that store. Whether it's an employee or another person that works locally, but it was definitely someone that knew their way around that basement and in that area and felt comfortable enough. Not comfortable because I don't believe that, you know, when it's a, a, a rage-filled attack like that, it's something, I don't believe it was planned. I believe it occurred spontaneously. You know, whether that was someone that fantasized about her and then, she said something that just set them off. She was described as such a nice, sweet girl. You, you said angelic, and I think that fit. Um, yeah. It's hard to see any other motive in this case except for perhaps someone who, who had issues themselves, maybe had developed a fantasy around her, and then at that moment there was some perceived slight or she rejected something them. that... Exactly, a rejection. And I don't even sense that it, it may not have been something that she understood as someone that had that feeling about her. She may have been just completely unaware. Right. And then it just, something happened and it was an instant. Because it was, it was rage and it was complete overkill. So it was definitely someone that um, had some issues, some anger management issues and was set off by something that, that occurred in that moment. And I think it's important to mention, I do not like getting into the gory details of a case, but she was assaulted using multiple weapons. And that's correct. She was partially. She had multiple wounds, and there were multiple weapons, and it was not something that would have been a quick and get out of there. It it was. Now I'm not saying it lasted a long time, but the thing I I tend to look at is this is a store in the middle of the day with other people around. It's not the general place that you would expect someone that had a an issue with her to come and seek her out. If, for example, when I think about the husband. If if he had some sort of interest in doing something to her, her place of employment would not be 
the ideal choice. Right, he would have killed I mean, her. He had access to her. I believe that the person that did this, this was the only place they had access to her, is what I believe. And that certainly makes sense because she lived in a, an apartment complex, I believe, so there was lots of people in and out, would not have been noticed. You know, maybe they didn't want to do something so close to their home. In addition to Jeanette's case and Sue's case, and you in your book, you go into many of the other, many, there's half a dozen open unsolved cases from the Reed City area. Is there another case that's sort of your pet case or that fascinates you? You know, because I didn't get into it, it's not something that it, that has been part of my life. I, I'm like everyone else. I enjoy Dateline and I get fascinated. But Jeanette's case really is, if I had a pet case, is the one that comes to mind because, I number one, I got the most information about it, but also the brutality of it. It, it, it haunts me. So it's one of those things where I, I think about it. It weighs on me. I think about it a lot you know, where you're in the middle of doing the dishes and suddenly you have this epiphany, so you run downstairs and my hands are dripping and I'm flipping through reports trying to, you know, did I forget this? It really does. It weighs on you. She never really leaves my thoughts for any length of time. And I guess because it seems so unacceptable to me that something so brutal could occur in the middle of the day and nothing, nobody knows what happened. The thing is, I I know someone knows what happened. Yes. So that's, I think that's why I can't let it go, because I know. I know that the right person just needs to come forward. And for whatever reason, they may not have. So I, I believe that this case is going to get solved, one way or the other. I believe it. I'm stubborn. So I'll keep bugging law enforcement, and God bless them. They've been so tolerant of me. But I'll keep, you know, invoking her name until we get some resolution, because it, it does feel like it's completely unacceptable that we don't know what happened to this woman in that pet department decades ago. And so until I find that out, it will probably be that pet case for me that will always, you know, weigh on my mind. Also that you live in this community and it's very possible that the person who did this to her shops where you grocery shop or goes to church with you or you sit across from them at the breakfast counter at the local restaurant. And that to me is distressing. I would say, I would go further and say it's not possible. It is probable. It is probable the person that did this is still around and is paying attention. That it, it, it is disturbing because whether or not this person ever committed another crime like this, this person is certainly capable of true brutality. And so it, it is concerning. It's concerning to know that, that someone that could do such horrible things to another human being is still walking around out there. One thing I want to clarify, and I'm, I'm sort of jumping around here, so forgive me, the police said that there were people in Gambles that day that they never spoke with. What happened, basically, when they first... When I spoke to Detective Pratt, let me go back. I asked him that. I said, did you speak with everyone? Do you believe you spoke with everyone that was in the store that day? And he said, I I certainly hope we have. So if there's anyone out there that was in the store that day and never spoke to police, no matter what you saw or didn't see, you certainly should speak with police. But what happened was that when their first responders arrived and the presumption was heart attack, one of the first responders was seen by the EMT at the door with the door wide open, shooing people out of the store. So some people did leave and may never have come back in. When I spoke to another one of the young men who was there at that time, 
with his mother. He said that some people did just sort of walk down to the Ben Franklin store and maybe mosey around. So it's likely that most of them did get spoken to, anyone that lived in the store. But even the EMT, when he was rushing in, said, you know, they, they asked me just afterwards, do I remember any of the people that were go, leaving the store? And he was from here, and he said, I didn't remember. I was headed to a heart attack. I didn't pay attention, but there were people that were being shooed out of the store. It's still a question whether everyone that, has, that was in that store that day uh, spoke with the police. And one of the things that I did encounter when I was talking to people on the street is not everyone in the, on that street was even canvassed because I got some leads from people who were two doors down and were never spoken to police. There are certainly, there's certainly the possibility that there are people out there who just never spoke to police and, and may not even think that anything they saw or heard was related to the case. And I would encourage those people to, to call. I've got the, the numbers on my, uh, my blog but to call because it may be that one tiny piece that the police need to say, aha, and put their timeline together. Because this, I believe, will be a timeline case. It may not be one of those cases that rests solely on the evidence because of it's been three decades, and while they can retest something, some things weren't even collected the way they would have been right. maybe today. But I believe because we're talking about a public place, the timeline and who saw what at what time and who may have been in the store at what time is going to play a part. So if you were in that store that day, I would encourage you to, to contact uh, the Michigan State Police, and you can go to the, the blog and get all those contact numbers and emails. And Detective Pratt, is the Michigan State Police trooper involved? Well, he was the initial investigator. He doesn't work with Michigan State okay. Police anymore, and I believe the contact would be Sergeant Mike Steffens, okay. who you would contact, and I have his email and number on one of the, the postings, Jeanette postings on my site. There's a, a few people working on the case, the cold case team, but he would be the direct contact. Okay, Sergeant Mike Steffens. And while we're on the subject yeah. of your webpage, can you tell us, obviously your books are available on Amazon.com, and I will provide links to your Amazon author page. So if people want to check out this book or some of your fiction works, I highly recommend it. And you're also on Twitter. And then can you tell us your website address? It is Jenny Decker at blogspot.com. And that is just directly, that site is just about the cold cases. I reserved that spot just for them because we do updates. Sometimes I do press releases for Michigan State Police and all of the cold cases including Jeanette's that I covered in Redacted, I have a page for on that site so that people can get an idea about the backstory. And if for each one, there's the contact information in case there's um, a tip that they need to call in. Terrific. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners about your work, about the case, about other cold cases? No, not necessarily. The only thing I would just love to make sure we get across is that it's important. Police are not mind readers. It is important that leads come in so that they can follow up on them. And I know a lot of people are uncomfortable about calling leads. They think to themselves, oh, it does, it's nothing. It was probably nothing. I'm like that. I feel guilty every time I click send to a Michigan State trooper, even though they have opened the lines of communication. Well, it's a one-way line. They're not going to share information with me. But they want that. They would rather have 100 leads that go nowhere that possibly have that one that they need and have people out there saying, oh, it's probably nothing, and not calling. So my main thing to leave listeners with is that anywhere, and, and this just goes for any case, it's important to have a good communication between law enforcement and the community. So if you see something or you know something, say something. It's important. That's something that came up in the case from Pennsylvania that I covered most recently, is that do not assume that law enforcement knows what you know. 
right. if you have information about the case, pass it forward to them so that they can follow up on it. The investigation can only go so far. It's the actual humans involved that pass along the information. So if you know anything about any crime, don't hesitate. That's what they want and that's what they need, and it will be greatly appreciated. If there's a good chance that the perpetrators are paying attention. If I killed someone, I'd sure be paying attention to yeah. what was being said about, you know, about it. So I think that, uh, you know, I wanted to get that information out there. I like those anyone that's, that is involved or has information. I want them to know, you know, I want them to to be able to see, yes, it's being worked on, so you should be, if you've yeah. done something this horrible, you should be afraid. Yeah, and not sleeping well. With the Clayson yeah, case, hope. I, you know, you have to think this guy did this somewhere else and that somebody is going yeah. to say, hey, this sounds exactly like thus and such case. Because yep, I, I agree. this is not a one-off. It, no, and he was pretty, I think, prepared. Uh, I did see that I, when I spoke to Kim, who had her mom knew a lot of the law enforcement agents in there, and I believe that someone saw him coming out of that. If you come down, like, sort of the, the road that, that that property was on, I think he may have turned the wrong way, went down a street and had to double back, and was consulting a map. So that makes me feel like at least Ugh. the 30 minutes drive away that he was. He may have known Cadillac enough, that little bit area, right. but he probably wasn't familiar with that little town. And so who knows where he was, but he certainly had it together enough to drive her car back to a place to park his car somewhere where it wouldn't be seen and get in the car and get out of there. Oh, the so it does him. feel like it could be someone that did it again. And I, you know, I saw, I don't know if you're familiar with that, the new technology that that Parabon lab is trying with the DNA and to, to produce a, a facial impression of possible it. perpetrators based yeah. on the DNA. I kind of think that that might be something that they could use in her mom's case because it, it sits well with random. Yeah. Um, as opposed to someone, you know, one that's not known. So I kind of encouraged her to see if the police can try to do that, but I'm not sure they have a good enough DNA sample yet, and they're going to try another technology in the future. So we'll see. I'd like to, them to try to do something like that on that case. Well, in these cases, they, they weren't collecting DNA. They didn't know. They weren't wearing gloves. They picked stuff up with their hands. They didn't that, know. That shocked me. When the EMT told me that when he said we couldn't use the sink, I, I have a vivid recollection of cleaning my hands with alcohol swabs. I thought, are you kidding me? Don't are you kidding me? You're about my age. I remember being yep. a kid mm-hmm. and the dentist feeling around in my mouth with his bare hands. He didn't wear gloves. Yeah. True. That's true. I never. Right. That's right. But because you remember that. We were that. pre AIDS everything. Exactly. We were pre. So pretty scary, much anything pre-1990. No gloves. And they didn't even collect things in the same way. You know, who knows what they have. You can find a link to Jenny Decker's blog and her Amazon page on my website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I also posted links on Twitter and in our Facebook discussion group, which you are welcome to join. If you enjoy this show and the lesser-known cases covered here, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave a positive review. Got feedback? You can reach me on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod or by email host at AlreadyGonePodcast.com. I would like to thank Cats to Books, Macacao from Cambridge, Hey Poop at Low, Love My Two Doxies, Pernilla, Crime Kelly, JKL5876, 
Izzy iTunes, and Walfi the Wonder Dog for leaving reviews. Thank you. Next week's episode will be the Season 2 finale, and we're headed to new territory, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I hope you'll join us. Already Gone will return in January with all new episodes about old cases and cold cases that you may not be familiar with. Thank you so much for listening, and please, be safe. Things that become totally routine, like, hey, we're going to drag a lake. Do you want to come over and watch? Mom, delivery! 
You've been loading up on things from Walmart. Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.